You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, I just want to say first, I, I really hope that you and I are paying close attention to the words that you're singing. Because there are so many times on Sunday mornings when I'm uh, meditating on the words of the song that's on the screen, and I am ministered to and realizing just how rich, just how truthful, just how important those words are. And it, it's a shame for those times when you and I just kind of gloss over them. Even that last song, the importance of our remembering and not forgetting who Jesus Christ is and what he's doing. That's a theme throughout scripture. And so let me encourage you as one of your pastors to make sure that every Sunday morning you are in tune, not just with the melody, if, if you are good enough to do that, but that you're in tune with the screen and that you're in tune with the content of what we're singing, because that is where the truth is. And I'm grateful for that this morning. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's word to our text, which is Amos chapter 7. Verses 1 through 9, as I mentioned last week, we are just a few chapters away from the end of the book of Amos, and then we plan to move back into the New Testament uh, verse by verse through the book of Revelation. But for now, we are in Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. When I was young, I remember my mom telling me about her upbringing, and she was telling me about the example from her generation that happens at least once, it seems, in every generation in which something happens in the world that burns into your memory this unforgettable event. You, you hear people talk about that. They say, I'll never forget where I was. Think about the, the thousands, millions of things that happen in your life, and you have no recollection of many of them let alone where you were. My mom would tell me when I was young that in her generation, one of those defining moments, if not the defining moment, was the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And she told me that she could remember exactly where she was, who was around her, what that felt like, what it was like. And decades later, she still could remember that. I remember when she was telling me that, just wondering what that must be like. Because I couldn't think of anything in my life up to that point that would be like that. My generation, uh, Generation X, we had one of those, but many of us were so young in 1986 that it's difficult to remember. I remember some of it. I remember being in our, in our living room and on the television watching kind of the replay over and over again of the Challenger explosion. That was one but absolutely, as I think it is for all of us who are here right now, almost all of us, except for those who, who were not born yet, that September 11th, 2001 is one of those times, if not the, the time. And it bears repeating on the 20th anniversary yesterday of 9-11 just what that is like, how it brings an event like that, the seriousness of life, the fragility of our world, uh, the evil that can exist, the heartache that can come, of course, the courage that rises up in the midst of those times, 
all of those leave an indelible mark on us, you probably then can remember where you were 20 years ago. I was in a, in a church staff meeting on uh, that morning, and I remember uh, somebody coming in and saying something was going on on the television, and we went out to a, a youth chat room about the size of this room, and the television was on, and the news was playing over and over again as we watched it unfold, trying to figure out what was going on. First, it seemed like an accident, and then it became quite purposeful. And as I think back about that, as I did yesterday, what that experience was like, perhaps you did as well, there's one, there's one word that kind of comes to the top of my mind among many others. Of course, that was 20 years ago. I was a far different person than I am today, so I think I would probably think about it differently today than I did then, hopefully in many better ways, but still the number one word that really stood out to me on that day and even yesterday was the word small. Because in that moment when the tragedy of 9-11 was happening and playing out before our very eyes in real time on live television, I remember feeling very small completely helpless. There's nothing that I can do to stop this, obviously. And feeling so small that the whole world became uncertain. In fact, I had only been married a year. And I remember talking on the phone. I had a pager at that time. And I didn't have a cell phone but talking on the phone with Catherine, and I remember of all, the th of all the things that happened that day, I remember her saying, are we safe? Are they going to come here? Is a plane going, you, you see the, the kind of absurdity of that. Is a plane going to fly into the church building and Owensboro, Kentucky, a little town of just 50,000 people? Is that what's going to happen? The whole world started to kind of unravel. We had never seen anything like that before. And I just felt so very small. And yet what's strange for me is, as a Christian and as a pastor, over the course now of 20 years of kind of growing up like we all have, I have gained over those years such an appreciation that is brought home to me yesterday, thinking back 20 years, on the value of feeling small. That's one of the things that we want to just push away from ourselves, right? We have this natural inclination to say it's, well, it's it feels dangerous. It feels out of control and uncertain to be small. The way you control your life, the way that you ensure security and safety is by being big not by being small. But as we come to the Word of God week in and week out together, we find this theme over and over again. We find it in this text this morning that there are big blessings to being small. And therefore, as tragic as events like the assassination of a president or the explosion of a shuttle and the loss of life or the, the, the attack or war upon our country in 9-11... As terrible as that is, and we never want for something like that to happen, there is something redemptive in that feeling of being small that says more to us than just 
a moment in history. It says something to us about who we are in this world and what life is all about. And I'd like for us to see that this morning in Amos chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, as we seek, as we do every week, to try to take the eternal word of God that is written in history, that is preserved for us into this moment, and, and, and see it transform our daily lives as we come to understand God's redemptive plan unfolding throughout the Bible. We want to consider this morning the big blessings of being small. And so we catch up here in the book of Amos, chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, beginning in verse 1, with this first important truth. It's one that's come up over and over again. It's probably feeling kind of familiar to us um, because of our, our focus on this book and the repetition of, of themes, and in particular this theme and it's simply this, it's the reminder yet again that sin brings, sin earns, sin deserves God's serious judgment. And that's an obvious truth, sin brings judgment. But this morning, we have yet another opportunity in these first few verses to see again and remember the depth and the seriousness of judgment for sin. The way that God's seriousness about sin and the judgment that follows as laid out in Scripture is so serious that it cuts to the very root of the problem. And sometimes it brings to our minds that overwhelming feeling of smallness. It brings to us that sense of of serious, serious trouble. And that's what happens here in these first few verses of Amos chapter 7. Now, what we're going to find here is something interesting in the book is now a kind of vision or revelation that's being given to Amos as God's revealing to him a picture of what God says is coming. And actually, there are two of them, and they kind of fit back to back. And so what we'll do here first is look at verse 1 and verse 4, and then we'll look at 2, 3, 5, 6. So look just at verse 1 and verse 4 and notice it's the same kind of picture repeated so that we can get a sense of the seriousness of God's judgment in this time because of what was happening in and among his chosen people. He says, this is what the Lord God showed me. And behold, he was forming a swarm of locusts when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. There's the first vision. It's the vision of another example of coming judgment. This time, it is God who has noticed the way he talks about him, Lord God. In your version of the Bible, it could be that there the word God is all capitalized. Remember, that any time that happens in the Old Testament, when all of the letters of God's name or title are capitalized, it is the, the name Yahweh. It's his covenant name by which he made himself known to, to, to Moses. That he is Yahweh, the covenant God, the sovereign God of the universe. You could read that then, the sovereign Lord. It's, it's doubling up the power of his character, of his strength, of his intensity. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was forming a swarm of locusts. 
locusts that would come in and ravage the crops. Of course, this is a very serious thing because this means that, that their food supply is taken away. It means that everything that would be left would be, would be dry and dead and unusable. You cannot think at this time in an agricultural culture of, of really very much more serious than that. To, to choke out the oxygen of life by taking away all of the produce in the field. But then it continues on with the next vision in verse 4 and says again, using the same serious words, so the sovereign Lord showed me and behold, the sovereign Lord was calling to contend with them by fire. We've seen this before in Amos, this reference to fire. And in the context where we've seen it before, it often seemed that it had to do with, with invading armies coming in. But here, you're going to see a much more serious kind of fire. Listen to the way this fire is described and what it does. In the vision, coming to contend with them by fire, it consumed the great deep. This is not simply fire of military effort and might coming in to ravage people on a horizontal level. This is vertical fire. This is heavenly fire. This is sovereign Lord fire falling from heaven. That's the only kind of fire that can consume the great deep the, the depths of waters in which you, you have no way of seeing down to the very bottom of them, they're a marvel in and of themselves, and the fire of God consumes them and begins to then spread, having consumed and lapped up the great deep, now consuming the farmland. We're getting an ominous, dark clouds kind of picture of a serious storm of judgment for sin. And the whole point is to raise our alarms and to set off sirens in our hearts that we would take sin seriously too, that they would take sin seriously, that Amos would take sin seriously. Here, sin, sin is the swirling, low-pressure wind which collects the flooding rain clouds that bring judgment. And it happens all according to God's sovereign will and his purpose in bringing it about. Anytime we see a text like this, we have an opportunity not only to see at face value the kinds of things that are happening, but the purpose is that we would see the God who is behind it. That's why there's such intentional language about the sovereign Lord and his forming a swarm with his hands. It's not a happenstance, accidental thing. He's doing it of his own will. It's a way for God to reveal to us divine attributes that are, that are buried inside the coming judgment and put them on display. I want to just point out three of them because they are so intimately interwoven into this text and they're so important for us to get our hearts and minds around. First, 
there is an attribute clearly on display, which is the sovereign Lord's utter power. There are things that we take for granted in the Bible all the time. One of them is the fact that, that, that God has the power to deliver visions. You and I have no ability to do that. You, you cannot speak something into the mind of another person. You, you can't make something appear before them. All that you could do is, is tell a story to, to people's ears with your mouth. You, you can't do what happens here and in many places in Scripture when God reveals himself. It is incredible power. Not to mention incredible power of being able to form swarms of locusts that would then destroy entire crops of a nation or to drop fire from heaven that would lap up all of the water in the ocean, you're seeing an unparalleled God in these words, unparalleled in power. He's unparalleled. We said it over and over again already this morning. He's unparalleled in sovereignty. The word sovereign means that he's a king who is in control. He is absolutely sovereign, even in his name. Sovereignty is not just an attribute that we put on him or we talk about him. It's what he is. He is sovereign. He is the sovereign. He is in control of everything. He is in control of people. He is in control of locusts. He is in control of fire. He is in control of farmland. Most importantly, he is in control of judgment. And that judgment comes, third attribute, because of his righteousness. There's never a moment in this text or any other in which God is is making the wrong move. You have no right to do that. You've, You've stepped out of bounds. You're off script. Everything that he does is done in this incredible, incredible righteousness. When we read these words, there ought to be a kind of despair that settles in on our hearts. Because when we read these words and we we see what the people of Amos have been doing, we look at ourselves, we look at everyone in the world, and we see the same things. Hopefully that's come out over the time that we've been in this book is that we've seen the commonality of sin. There's nothing new under the sun. The same things that they were doing then are the same things that people are doing now. And that reality ought to settle in a kind of despair for being sinners. And yet, in a real twist of grace and mercy, it also simultaneously ought to settle in a real rejoicing reality that this is the God who rules the world. That when leaders are assassinated, when terrible plans explode, when terrorists attack, that the God who rules it all is perfect in power, he's absolute in sovereignty, and he is fully and without end, always 
righteous. It's a weird thing in the Christian life that one truth brings both trembling and comfort. That brings both, as in fact one of our former presidents said in a speech yesterday, brings both comfort and a sense of our vulnerability. These are two things that we are in desperate need of because we are both, aren't we? We are sinners and we are righteous. And for now, until the end, either when Jesus returns or we go to be with him and he puts all of his enemies under his feet as a footstool and he takes away sin and, and the final redemption is complete and we're with him in his kingdom and all we know is the bliss of his, of his heavenly fellowship, we will feel the tension. I am a sinner and I am also justified and so I can feel both of these things. A real seriousness for sin. A real kind of concern and even fear of what judgment would be like. And yet immense comfort knowing what we know about this God. That this God is the God who gave his son for us. So that we would be comforted. So that we would be changed. That he would take our judgment. Sin brings God's serious judgment. But also, we want to see this morning something immensely comforting and hugely motivating. And that is that God listens. God listens to his people when they cry out to him. I told you a second ago that we were going to see these two visions of judgment coming, which we just saw in verse 1 and verse 4. They're kind of separated from each other. They're, they kind of, as you see in your copy of the Bible there, they're right up against each other, but there's a piece in between at the, at the end of each one that then shows how did things turn out in those cases of judgment that were just revealed. And what we find is that Amos does what the leaders of God's people who are faithful always do, is that when they see judgment coming, it impresses upon them not a desire to be big, but a desire to be small and to cry out to the God who can help. And that's what Amos does here as we look at verses 2 and 3 and 5 and 6. They match up as you look in your copy. And I want you to see here that God not only had ordained this vision of judgment but he had also ordained the means by which he would relent from bringing it. This is a beautiful picture that we've, we have not seen a lot of in the book of Amos yet until here. And it's a reminder to us in these verses of God's faithfulness to his covenant people that in the intercession of prayer for them, he relents. His love remains true to them and fast. And we know that because we've read the rest of the story. But we see here in verse 2, the first example of what happened in the first vision. This ought to give us hope. This ought to give us hope of God's love for us. And it ought to give us hope and motivation that we would be praying people. That's what we want to be as a church. We want to be praying people because we know that God hears us and he listens. But see it for yourself in these words. In verse 2 it says, And it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation, the swarm of locusts, of the land, that I said, 
Now, here's, here's always intentional wording, so slow down and take in the words. Lord Yahweh. Sovereign Lord, the same sovereign Lord who's bringing judgment righteously, sovereignly, with immense power. Sovereign Lord, please pardon. Please relent. Please turn, repent. Please change course. Notice the pleading with God. Notice that probably in your translation of the Bible, the the editors have, have placed in there, according to the contextual grammar, an exclamation mark. It's not a flippant request. It's not a, it's not a request just like walking out the door doing a thousand things. It is intense. Please, imploring, begging, please, please pardon. And then he says, the same thing he says in the second vision, how can Jacob stand for he is small? The Lord relented of this. It shall not be, said Yahweh. Then the second vision in verses five and six, the same kind of thing happens again. It's this kind of repetition in the visions to drive home this point. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand for he is small? The Lord relented of this. This too shall not be, said the sovereign Lord. While sin is that swirling, low-pressure wind which collects the flooding rain clouds of judgment, divinely ordained prayer is the high-pressure front which calms the swirling winds of judgment by appealing, as Amos did here, to the heart of God. I want you to see a couple of things that are an important part of Amos' prayer. Why did he pray this way? And why does it result in this relenting of the Lord's plan of judgment? First, he prayed this way by appealing to the smallness of God's people. In this moment of extreme judgment and fear and trembling, he resists, Amos resists the urge to make a case for why God should relent based upon the bigness or the esteem or the value or the potential of his people. Now, why is that so important? Because that's my natural inclination. That's your natural inclination. When you're in trouble, your natural inclination is to defend yourself on the basis of how good you think you really are. That's what I do. Of how big and how much potential you really have. That's what I do. But that's only because I think I'm far better than I actually am. I think I'm a far better pastor than I actually am. I think I'm a far better parent than I actually am. I think that I'm a far better husband than I actually am. And therefore, 
when I'm caught in trouble, I defend myself by appealing to my bigness. But that's not what Amos does. And this is a real example to me. When Amos intercedes on behalf of the people, he does not appeal to their bigness. He appeals to their smallness. He highlights how fragile they are, how weak they are. He says, how can Jacob stand? Rhetorical question. He can't. He can't stand. He's not strong enough to stand. He's not going to withstand this judgment. You are, you are too great. You're too big. The judgment is too much. And he is small. He cannot survive this. This is the influx of incredible, which we talked about last week on Sunday morning, incredible, incredible humility. This is the value of, of that settled feeling after the assassination or the explosion or the attack on your country of smallness. That's what we're desperately missing. We're missing the reality that we are utterly, incredibly small. We cannot stand. But here's the beautiful thing beyond that. By appealing to the smallness of the people and their desperate need for God's grace and mercy, he's not only appealing to something about them, something in them, their smallness, he's actually appealing to the very heart of God. Because unlike the gods of the world, the God of the Bible, the one true God, does not have a heart for big people. He is not impressed with charm or strength or resolve or will or talents or wealth or any of those things. They don't impress him. But rather, he has a heart, unlike the gods of the world, for the small, for the weak, for the foolish, for the poor. Those are the people over whom his heart sings. So when Amos says, please, please don't do this, sovereign Lord, how can Jacob stand? He's just so small. He is appealing to the very heart of God that was responsible for his love for them, for his choosing them, for his sustaining them. He is appealing to the heart of God who loves, who loves the small. Now, this might be new to you. If it is, let me try to show you in a few passages that you can turn to. I don't know how well you'll see them on the screen. So you can turn to them. First one is this, Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 11. If you're taking notes, this is one of those great places for you to write down the address of these passages and over these next few days leading up to community group and up to next Sunday, that you would take these passages and, and make them a matter of meditation, that you would consider what we're seeing today in Amos and go into these passages and really meditate before God on, on the, the, the marrow of the truth that is in them. Now, when I say that to you, let me encourage you as one of your pastors, I don't say that to you as something kind of optional like, that would be a good idea. 
I say that to you, like, go do this. Write it down, and this week, spend time in these passages. Make sure that you're feeding your heart on these truths together with the rest of us because they are essential and they reveal the heart of God just as Amos is, is appealing to the heart of God in this text. So let's look first at Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 11. I'm going to show you three passages that are rich with the kind of truth that we need to help us embrace our smallness and to see why God's heart is for us, his small people. Starting in verse 7, listen to this. In Deuteronomy 7, it's, it's about God's love for his chosen people, who the Bible calls his elect. That's both the nation of Israel and now, as we know, Gentiles, non-Jews from around the world who have been brought in among his elect to his chosen people, and they all together are true Israel. They are the chosen people of God. Listen to how and why he loves them. Listen to how and why he loves you. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord, there it is again, all caps, Yahweh, the sovereign, did not make you his beloved, nor choose you because you were greater in number than any of the peoples, since actually you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the sovereign loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the sovereign brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the sovereign, your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his faithfulness to a thousand generations for those who love him and keep his commandments, but he repays those who hate him to their faces to eliminate them. He will not hesitate toward him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. This is one of those passages that reminds us of just why he loves us. And the answer to that question cannot be found inside of me. It cannot be found inside of you. It only can be found inside of him. He loves us because he loves us. He loves us because we are small. And he loves the small. That's why God loves us. But second, here's the second passage, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Again, this is a passage that tells us why, in his great love, did he choose those whom he has chosen. Verse 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Consider when God called you to faith and brought you into his covenant kingdom, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world 
to shame the things which are strong and the insignificant things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no human may boast before God. But it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Wow. Why did God save us? He did not save us because we were something. He saved us because we were nothing. And by saving us, it showed off just how big of a something he really is. And that is our comfort. That is my comfort every day in the Christian life. Why is that so comforting to me? Because if God had chosen to save me because of something in me, then it would be on me to keep up with the program. You better keep it up. You better keep doing what you're supposed to do. You better, you better stay big. You better stay wealthy. You better stay strong. You better stay significant. And I just can't do that. It's not in me. I'm too small. And so this passage is comforting. I hope it's comforting to you. God does not love you. He has not saved you because you are great. In fact, he saved you because you are not. Last text this morning in this string of three is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 10. Notice here, this is an example from the life of the Apostle Paul, and it speaks exactly to why God and how God then sustains his people. You've seen why he loves us. Then you saw in the second passage in 1 Corinthians why he has saved us, and now you see why and how he sustains us or sanctifies us. This is what Paul says. In verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, because of the extraordinary greatness of the revelations, all of the incredible things God was doing in the life of the Apostle Paul, all that he was showing him, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, to keep me from being big, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Now, we don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. Uh, perhaps it was some kind of a condition in his eyesight that was greatly humbling to him and restrictive to him in his ministry so that he had to ultimately depend upon other people and on God. That could be it because in some of his writings, he, he points out that he's having to write with big letters. It seems like that may be what it was. We don't exactly know. But whatever it was, he considered to be a real, a real suffering a real trouble. In fact, he calls it next in the passage, a messenger of Satan to torment me. God gave me a thorn, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Why? If you don't think the Apostle Paul has a problem with self-esteem and self-exaltation, read this passage and see the truth to keep me from exalting myself. 
the Apostle Paul, the one that we, we so look up to, rightly so, was just like us. He had this incredible propensity, especially because of all that God had gifted him with and all the great things that God was doing through him to exalt himself. In fact, the problem was so great that God had to give him a thorn to torment him to keep him from exalting himself. That's how important it was for him to remain small. He says, concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And then he goes on, he says, most gladly, therefore, listen to this, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. Tell me that is not counterintuitive, countercultural in our country and around the world. No one boasts in their weaknesses. Everyone boasts in their strengths. When you go to a job interview and they ask you what your greatest weakness is, smart people in their interview will turn it around into a strength. My greatest weakness is I'm just, I'm just too loyal. That's the kind of thing that we do. But that's not what Paul does. I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that, in the, power of, so that the power of Christ may dwell in, in me. Therefore, I delight in weakness, in insults, in distresses, in persecutions, in difficulties, in frustrations, in problems, in conflicts, in all of my weaknesses on behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When Amos calls out to God and says, Jacob cannot stand, he is too small. He is appealing to the very heart of God who loves weakness and has ordained that weakness is the way. The very best place is the place where we feel our smallness. Three reasons. One, God becomes big. When you really feel your smallness because of something going on in the world or something going on in your life or something going on in your heart, God becomes big. And he becomes big because, two, our need for him is finally felt. Big, strong, wealthy, um, talented people who revel in their, in their strengths, they don't feel their need of him. Because we've got it all under control. I can take care of life. I've got this. But instead, when God becomes big, we feel our need of him. And most beautifully, third, as we see here, his glory, his grace, his mercy is magnified. And it is magnified by our dependence on him. It's not magnified by independence. It's not, it's not magnified by being an independent person and handling your life. It is magnified by not being able to handle your life and depending on him. This is one of our greatest problems. We are too big. I am too big. John the Baptist even noted this about himself, didn't he? What did he say? I must decrease. 
he must increase. So as we look at this text and we move on to the very final truth for this morning, here's one application that I hope you'll take to heart. Being like Amos, pray. Pray your way into smallness. That's one of the best ways to become small, meditating upon the God who is big and praying your way into smallness. How do you do that? How do you pray your way into smallness? Well, you pray for it. You pray about it. You talk to God about this. Recognizing in texts like this the importance of of being small before him, you pray that he would help you. You say in your own words things like this, Lord, I am small. You are big. Please help me. Please comfort me. Sustain, change, grow, correct, humble me because I am small, Lord. Make me feel it. That's how we pray into smallness. And there, I think, is nothing more important than for us to pray in this attitude before God as it is displayed for us throughout the scriptures. Our hope in praying that way is because finally this morning we see in verses 7 through 9 that this text, as it keeps moving forward with the people of Israel and the the judgment upon them and their, their smallness, their great need for God's grace, is just that, that our only hope is divine grace. That's our only hope in the world. That is the ultimate reality of the Christian life and every life is that that is the only hope in the world. Listen to what happens in verses 7 through 9. There's another vision that's given to Amos, and it's a vision of something called a plumb line. He says in verse 7, He showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. Now, a plumb line is a, is a long string with a weight on the bottom of it, and it can be held up, and because of the pull of gravity, it will pull it straight down, and therefore it gives a, a way of identifying if something is straight or level. It's a way of seeing if it is true. In this case, God is using this as a picture of what he's doing to his people. He's putting them to the test. Using this plumb line... He's using the the standard of his own character, the standard of his law and his expectations as a way to to test their trueness or their righteousness. Why is he doing this? He's not doing this because he thinks they'll pass the test. He's doing this because he knows they won't. And by putting them to the test, it's a way of showing yet again that there is no hope in self-righteousness, there's no hope in self-exaltation or being big, but the only hope is by looking to the God of the universe who is full of grace and mercy. And that's what this plumb line is all about. It is a test. Have you ever been put to a test for which you were absolutely no match whatsoever? might have been a subject in school that you just could not get and you knew going in that you were going to fail it. It could be a subject that you just intentionally did not prepare for and then you went in for the final exam and you didn't know any of the answers. I've had days like that. 
where I didn't answer any of the questions on it. I just put my name on it and turned it in. What, 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 what do I know about it? Nothing. I'm no match for this test. The world loves to tell stories of people who are no match for a test but find another way. That's not the Christian life. That's not the message that we see here in the plumb line. Ben Franklin dropped out of school at 10 years old, went on, great success. Richard Branson of the Virgin brand, a mogul, dropped out at 15 because of dyslexia, now a billionaire. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, both dropped out of Ivy League schools before their, their success settled in. Amazing stories. Those are not the stories of the Bible. Those are the stories that we love to tell in this world that loves bigness, but these are not the Christian stories because there is no workaround, not when God's plumb line of his law comes down. He says, Then the Lord said, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. And immediately the answer of the test comes, I will not spare them any longer. All he has to do is drop the plumb line. I will not spare them any longer. The high places of Isaac will become deserted. The high places, the big places, the places of esteem, the things that they looked upon as this is our hope, this is what makes us special in the world. The sanctuaries which they had perverted of Israel will be in ruins. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword." The true story of the Christian life, the true story of God's people is not failing a test and then finding another way. The true test of God's people, according to his law, is that we fail the test and there is no other way. So we beg for mercy. We beg for grace. And then this God shows us grace. This is why we say so often in our church that we are in desperate need of the gospel every single day, not just to bring us into God's family so that we can be converted and saved and then we move on out into greener pastures, but the greener pastures then is the gospel. It's the continued remembrance that we are small every day. Even in our greatest achievements, we know compared to the Lord, I am small. I'm in desperate need of grace and mercy. And therefore, we want to remember that gospel over and over and over again. Why? Because you fail the test over and over and over again. You never pass the test. We need God's grace. This may be unfamiliar to you. One more passage that I think helps bring this truth home. In Matthew 22, this is perhaps to me the most depressing passage in the Bible and yet also the most comforting passage in the Bible at the same time. Listen to what it says. Here, someone has come to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. By the way, there's a second one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. That is the worst news that has ever been spoken in the history of mankind. Because no one can do that. Who can love the Lord your God with all of your heart? You've never done that. I've never done that. It's incredibly, incredibly depressing until 
until in comes the gospel. Because the gospel is, as we know, that great announcement of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has kept the law. What does that mean? It means that he and he alone has loved his God with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his mind, and he did it for us. He has given that to us as a gift. And therefore, when I read this passage, I'm immensely comforted because I know someone who has done this for me, these two things, loving God, loving neighbor perfectly, and on them, on him, hang all the commandments of the law and the prophets. And therefore, he is our hope. This passage is our comfort. This truth, this gospel is all that we have. And we are delighted to have it because we know that we are small. This morning, as we come to a close, I want to encourage you of what we often encourage one another to keep doing. Keep your eyes on God by hearing over and over and over again this announcement of good news in the gospel. It is what we desperately, desperately need. Keep your eyes on the words on the screen as you sing those songs. Listen to what we read earlier from Rock of Ages. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. We want that to be our meditation today and every day as we see the big blessings of being small. Let me invite you to stand with me as I pray for us and we sing yet again. This is a wonderful time if you are new to our church and you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, that you might take this time and go to the back where, where pastors will be and others will be who could talk together or even contact us during the week. We want you to know more of this great God who loves small people like us. We want to revel in his grace and his mercy. Our Father, this morning, we give you thanks because you are the God of the small. You are the God of the weak. You are the God of the needy. And we feel against all that is in us, remaining of sin, when our world turns down, when the storms come, when explosions happen, we feel our smallness. We pray that in our world, that feeling of smallness would drive masses of people to you and that they would be saved because you love the small, because you are gracious to the small, and you have planned from eternity past to save those who are small and insignificant, to put on display your incredible greatness. May your love for us, your choosing us, your sustaining us all by grace alone, we pray that that would be the hope of our hearts, that it would make us glad, that it would make us happy like nothing else in the world can. And we pray that as a result of that happiness, our hearts would sing every day, even as we sing right now together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.